0: The following audio has been brought to you by Word of Grace Community Church. For more information about Word of Grace, visit wogcc.com. Well, it's so good to see you. I was here a couple of years ago, and many of your faces look familiar, so thank you, thank you for letting me come back. I'm kind of going to speak today about the Bible. Uh, Tonight and for the next few nights, we're going to talk about a way to properly understand it. In many ways, the atmosphere in which we live today is very much like the first century. Many gods, many religions, many people tricked by false teaching. And suddenly into this atmosphere came the gospel. And you might ask yourself, how do I know which one of these holy books, which one of these groups, which one of these worldviews is really true? Matter of fact, if I gave you a three-by-five card and I asked you to write down why do you believe the Bible is true? What would you put on that card? I trusted Christ by the witness of my mother sometime around age 12. And it was a wonderful time. I felt forgiven. I felt blessed. I felt the Lord was with me. But as years went by and I experienced the world more and more, more and more questions came to my mind. I met other people who claimed to know God in a different way than I did, claimed to have a different experience than I did. And I began to ask myself, is there any way to know? Is there is there any amount of certainty? Uh, can I verify why I believe the Bible is the word of God? Now, about half of my ministry was spent in the local pastorate and about half was spent in the university. Uh, I am academically trained in a disciplined, uh, I heard the sister say it, it's hermeneutics. It's from a, a Greek verb to interpret, hermeneuo, and it simply means to understand, to explain. Much, much, much of what I hear in the name of God has very little to do with God and a whole lot to do with the personality and culture and background of the person who's speaking. So the question comes, number one, how do I know the Bible is true? And number two, how do I understand this ancient book that was not written in my language, not written to my culture, and is over New Testament 2,000 years, and the Old Testament many, many more thousand years? How do I understand it? I want to look you right in the eye and tell you that I, I, this is the 49th year of my ministry, and I'm still learning. And the more I know, the more I know I don't know. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? So if you're looking to me for all the answers, you might as well leave now and have another cup of coffee. I'm going to give you the very best I know. I have thought about this, prayed about this, struggled with this for all these decades. I am certain, I am certain there is a God. (laughs) I remember I heard a guy say, I've learned two things. There is a God, and I'm not him, (laughs) okay? (laughs) So I want to stimulate your thinking more than I want you to agree with me. I know when you leave, you're going to say, oh, I enjoyed that. Well, you're a strange person because I'm going to step on your face. I am starting tonight, and I, I have got to show you that what you're doing is not right for you to be at least willing to hear what I say about a new approach. I'm going to drive a Mack truck through things you've always heard and assumed to be true. I have the right to ask you, can you show me in the Bible where you got that? And you have the right to ask me. And if I can't show you, then it's just opinion or denominational traditions or personal experience or whatever. We're trying to get back to the irreducible minimums of historical Christianity. And that comes from an understanding of Scripture. Scripture is the pillar. I know nothing about Jesus apart from Scripture. Now, I, I, I met him and had forgiveness, but who is he? Where did he come from? How do others meet? All of that came from Scripture. So I want to ask you again. If I really pushed you and said, not only why are you here this morning, but why do you believe that this is the only inspired revelation of God? What would you say? If you said I spent $50 for it, that ain't gonna cut it. <laughs> My mother told me, thank God for your mother, but that ain't gonna cut it. My denomination says, there are a lot of denominations. No, I'm gonna cu- oh, no, no, I'm gonna push you now. Why do you believe this book is God's book? What about the Quran? What about the Gita? What about the Rig Veda? No, no, come on now. Why do you believe this is true? That's a fair question. Well, I grew up in a Christian home. That's great, but that's not the answer to this question. Why do you believe this is unique, revelatory message from God? I have thought about this. Now, I live. I retired 15 years ago, but I lived in an academic community for a long time. And I came at the place as the religion department. I did not want to tiptoe past psychology, archaeology, anthropology, and biology. And I think that Christianity can stand in any forum with empirical evidence of what to believe and why. I want you to know that natural science is a faith-based worldview. I hope some of you here are scientists. I hope we prepare our young people for secular universities with militant atheistic professors. I don't think we do why do you believe what you believe could you back it up if someone asked you these are the questions so I'm going to present to you and I call this empirical evidence for the uniqueness of Scripture now I'm using the word empirical not in the scientific sense of repeatable measurable experimentation I'm using empirical in the sense of historical. I'm, I can't back this up and, you know, produce a little... If I could produce one little demon, I could convince people about the Bible's worldview. I can't do that. But I want your mind this morning. Man, we had our emotions in the music time. Think. I don't know if you realize what a wonderful place this is. I go to some dead churches, my friend. Holy moly. <laughs> the funeral home is livelier in some churches I go to. Thank God for a place that worships. But that, that was reaching your heart. I'm, I'm after your mind. I want you to think with me. I'm not asking you to agree with me because I know I'm sinful. I know I'm historically conditioned. I know I've been affected by where I went to school and the teachers I had. I know that. But you are too, you big weenie. You're affected too with where you grew up, what your parents told you, what school you went to. We need to think through this clearly and not just what I'm comfortable with. I want to give you four evidences in order of priority of why I believe the Bible's true. I hope you'll write this down because I hope somebody asks you one day why you believe the Bible's true. Because I guarantee you when you go out in the street today in America and you say the Bible says, about 90% will say, so what? Who cares? So you have got to be able to give an account of the hope that's in you. You're here this morning because you believe the Bible is the word of God. Okay, I want to push you on why, And it's more than goosebumps when you sing Jesus loves me. The most significant, empirical, demonstrable evidence for the uniqueness of Scripture is predictive prophecy. There is no other holy book in the world that has predictive prophecy. Now, the the religions of the East have a different they're they're a philosophical based religion. They are not historically based. They cannot give evidence for any of their worldviews. Christianity, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are historically based faiths. Now, Islam, the Quran has one, one prophecy. And it was, uh, it was given by Mohammed about 10 years before it was fulfilled. And it was the outcome of a battle between Rome and another power of that day. And everybody knew Rome would win, and that's the prophecy. It's within the life of the prophet, and it's what was the everybody expected to be true. I do not consider that predictive prophecy, Okay. Now there are some kinds of prophecies in the Bible that I'm not talking about. Let's just take for a minute Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey and being betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Now that's from Zechariah 9. Zechariah is an apocalyptic book. If you read Zechariah 9, there are many other details that did not occur in the life of Christ. And the early church, as they read Zechariah, after they saw the life of Christ, they said, look, This fits. Now, we call that typology. That is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about does the Bible have any precise historical predictions that come true in in, in Scripture? Now, there are many of these, but the ones that, that I think are really significant, if you have your Bibles, I hope you'll turn with me. It'll take you about 30 minutes to find this, but... Micah chapter 5. Now, that's where the gold is still on your Bible, right in the middle, okay? It's after the big prophets, and you get into the little prophets, and if you, you know, I'm, I remember, Derek, went time I was at a pastor's conference, and my friend and I were sitting there, and they said, turn to Obadiah, and my friend looked at me and said, page 1003. He had no clue where it was either. He had to look it up in the index, you know, so we don't deal with these a lot. The Micah 5 is really a big one, so let me quickly talk about Micah. Micah is what we call a 7th century prophet. We're talking about 750 years B.C. He was a prophet to Judah. And he spoke at the same time as the very famous prophet Isaiah. So we've got Isaiah and Michael, 750, speaking to Judah. So 750 years before the birth of Christ, in Micah chapter 5, it names the insignificant village where the Messiah will be born if we were in town today and we went to one of these small communities out here that didn't, doesn't have a red light doesn't have a stop sign that would be Bethlehem there was nothing famous about This city was so small, they did not take young men from this city to be soldiers because there we were not enough young men to run the agriculture of that area. This is a really small place. Its only claim to flame is that Jesse, the family of Jesse, David's family, was born there. No one expected Bethlehem to be the place the Messiah was born. They were all expecting Jerusalem, the capital, the center of, of the religious life of the Jewish people, the temple. They were expecting there, Bethlehem. Now, it's called Bethlehem Ephrathah in Micah 5, 2, because there are two Bethlehems. Bethlehem means house of bread, very common term. There's one up in the tribal allocation of Naphtali and one in the tribal application of Judah, Bethlehem Ephrathah is the Judah one, okay? It's about, though, 30 or so miles uh, southwest of Jerusalem. Now, people say to me, well, Bob, I just don't really believe Micah was written in 750 B.C. Okay, okay. Now, wait a minute. You do know that the Hebrew Scripture was translated into Greek Somewhat time around 250 B.C. We ha- even have a letter that tells us the exact date. We're not sure if it's true or not. It's l- it sounds a little magical to us. It's called the letter of Aristus. It talks about that the Jews who lived in Alexandria, Egypt, many Jews had lived there. They wanted a copy of the scripture in their language. So they brought 70 Jewish scholars to Alexandria and in 70 days they wrote the Septuagint. Most of us think that's a bit much, but that is a tradition of how old this is. So if you don't believe 750, it's translated 250 years before the event. That's longer than the history of the United States. If you don't believe 750, you've got to believe 250 because of the translation. 250 years minimally, 750 years maximally, God told his people the village the Messiah would be born in. And it wasn't easy for Jesus to get to that village either, amen? What do you do, kick prenatally south? I mean, come on. How do you get from Nazareth to Bethlehem, nine months pregnant? It was that, it was that emperor that required this uh, uh, census for taxation purposes. And here is Ma- Mary, full, full term, having to go all that way south. My goodness. Now, what does that mean I could do many others of these, but what does it mean that this book tells us a precise historical event hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before it happened? If God knew that, he knows about you. He knows about your life. He knows about your needs. He knows about your problems. He knows where the world is going. Nothing surprises God. He is the God of time and space and history. There is a plan in place for people made in his image. Predictive prophecy. No holy book in the world except the Bible has predictive prophecy. It's one of the most powerful evidences for a unique book we have. For me, living in the university, the second most powerful evidence is the modern academic discipline of archaeology. Now, originally, archaeology was pretty loose, and uh, people found things and said this is what it meant. But it's been developed over time into a very precise, repeatable, scientific methodology. Now, I want to give you a few examples of how the historicity of the Bible has been confirmed because the Bible stands or falls on its historicity. Amen? If it says something happened that didn't happen, the Bible is a lie. This is not mythology. This is not written after the fact. This is God speaking to people in a way that they can confirm it enough to live their life for him. Now, I want to do three or four of them because I think they're really powerful evidence. The first one I want to do is Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis, really, Abraham comes in 12, but his family begins to be named in chapter 11. And some of those family names are Nahor, Terah, and Abraham. Sound familiar? Now, you know that names come in a certain time and in a certain period. I bet none of you are named Beauregard. But if you were born in Louisiana 100 years ago, there were many Beauregards. My wife and I are named Bob and Peggy. No one's named Bob and Peggy today. Nobody. It's Taylor. and No, nobody's named Bob and Peggy. Names are characteristic of a time and a place. Do you know the name? Not the people now, not the people of the Bible, but the names, Nahor. Terah and Abraham appear in some documents called the Nuzi tablets from the 2000 BC period in the very area of the mouth of the Tigris Euphrates. The very same names that occur in the Bible, different people now, but the names also appear in this other ancient documented literature from the same time and the same place on the globe. Another one that's interested me through the years is the word Hittites. Do you know that name? Hittites are listed as one of the 12 tribes of Canaan. But we know from history that there was a huge empire in the Bible called the Hittite Empire. It would be much of what is modern-day Turkey. But did you know the word Hittite never appears in any ancient document but the Bible? Now think what I just said. And scholars would say, well, the Bible just made them up. There's never been any Hittites. Oh, really? 1952, an archaeological team in central Turkey found the royal archives of what was known as Anatolia. And now from their documents, we know that Anatolia, that major empire north of Israel, went by two names, documented now. Anatolia and Hittite. The first time that term has ever appeared in any ancient literature before 1952 and now it's confirmed. Daniel chapter 5. You might want to turn your Bibles there. If you found Micah, you can find Daniel. Uh, Chapter 5 is an unusual account of a man called Belshazzar. Uh, He is called the king of Babylon. Now we have found in archaeological list, 14 different lists, different places, different times, of the kings of what we call Neo-Babylon. Belshazzar is on none of those lists. Now, if you know chapter 5, this is the handwriting on the wall. Many, many tickle you You've been weighed in the balance and found warning. It's a judgment thing given to Belshazzar because he drank wine out of the gold cups from the temple. And God sent judgment to that whole empire that day. And Daniel was very old, and they brought him in and asked him to interpret this because they knew the words, but they didn't know the meaning. But wait a minute now. If the guy is named Belshazzar, and there's no king in any of the list named Belshazzar, and you've got this supernatural stuff about a hand writing on a plaster wall, well, you don't believe that, do you? Oh, come on. That's one of those Bible myths. Now we if I was Paul Harvey, now we know the rest of the story. Belshazzar's mother was the was the high priestess of the moon goddess Zin, S-I-N, or Z-I-N, either one. And she moved to the moon god's holy city of Tima in northern Arabia. Her son, had a military campaign in that area and went on a 12-year military expedition to northern Arabia and left the crown prince in charge of Babylon. Now we know. Guess who the crown prince was? Belshazzar. Documented in ancient writing now. And what, what liberal scholars said is just a biblical myth and not really true is now become confirmed history. I would say to you, I'm looking you right in the eye, every time archaeology has made a major discussion, the historicity of the Bible has been confirmed at every turn. This is a trustworthy historical account. Is it true there are some things that no other history confirms? Yes. Is it true there are some supernatural elements that are beyond natural history? Yes. But what we can know, we know is true. Holy moly, that's evidence for the uniqueness of this book. Number three. This book is written in three languages. Ancient Hebrew, Royal Aramaic, and Street Greek, called Koine Greek. Just like the Latin Vulgate, that Vulgate means common or unclean. Koine Greek means common or unclean. It was the language of the people, not the language of the scholars, not the language of the academy. It was the language of the merchants of the Mediterranean world. So three languages. Now, people who wrote this book, some of them were kings. Some of them were priests. uh, Some of them were country farmers. One of them was an itinerant fruit Picker, Amos. What I'm saying to you is, in three languages, over 1,600 years, it depends on the date of the Exodus. We're not sure about the date of the Exodus. Some want to make it uh, 1445. Others want to make it 1290. We're not doubting that the Exodus occurred. We don't know the date. So it depends if it's 1,600-year period or 1,400 years. Three different languages by all kinds of different people Oh, Think of that, 14 to 1600 years. And this book does not contradict itself. We couldn't go out in the street today and ask any question without getting different answers from different people. There is no unanimity today about important things like worldview and, 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 and questions about God. Here is a book by all kinds of people over well over a thousand years and it does not contradict itself It has one central message. Yes, there are different authors and different aspects of that message, but there's one message about God. And his love for man and man's rebellion and God's desire to restore man to fellowship with himself. And that message is repeated again and again in national stories, in individual stories. And it's over and over again of God's love for us and his provision for us to come to know him. I think the unity of the message is a powerful evidence. Now you say, well, what about the Quran? Doesn't it have... I don't know if you ever heard about the satanic verses. But there are places where, you know, it's supposedly given by, by God and not by Mohammed, who wasn't trained in, in a literary sense, could not even read and write, they say. And yet, yet the, uh, the Quran is beautiful Arabic. And they say it came from God. There is a whole set of prophecies that were said one day and they tried to take away a few days later. Wait a minute now, something's up here. You got one book that doesn't disagree with itself over thousands of years plus, and you got another that does, but both claim to be God's word. Finally, I guess the one that means so very, very much to me, I, I did not trust Jesus by reading the Bible. I trusted Jesus because my mother told me. She said, Bob, all of us have sinned, but God's provided a way for us to, to know Him, to be restored. If you trust Jesus, you, you can feel forgiven. And at 12 years old, I believed my mama and trusted Him and felt that release and peace. As I grew older, I began to search, began to ask more questions, began to grow. But something radically changed in my life. I can rem- I've forgotten Everything about talking to the preacher, I've forgotten everything about being baptized. It's just gone in my mind. And boy, for years, the devil just beat me up saying, how do you know you said the right thing? How do you know you felt the right way? How do you know you joined the right group? (laughs) I don't. But I remember walking home sometime during this time in my life, and I remember looking up at the night stars, and for the first time in my life, I was not afraid of God. (laughs) real peace peace not connected to circumstances something's happened to me my life was going this way God called me to preach off my Harley out of a bar and he's turned me into a Bible professor (laughs) something's happened to me and I can't explain it but I know something's happened to me and it's connected with Jesus and as I began to study this book it all started to make sense to me these are the reasons why I believe the Bible is a unique inspired only clear revelation of the one true God just an advertisement about tonight I grew up in a small church in Houston Texas a place called Bel Air Texas and when I came to the place that, I, I came back, <laughs> I'll tell you this story. All my, I guess I left home when I was in junior high school, worked, had my own apartment, very, very young, and all the guys would come over to my place. And uh, we would go, run, we would run around on the weekends to different striptease places, not you, me. And uh, so the Sunday school director came, because I'd visited church, something was happening in my life and he left a note on my door I still have the note it said Bob no need to strip for this trip see you in church Sunday (laughs) non-judgmental loving Sunday school director who happened to be one of the Nassau people that helped guide those ships to the moon knocked on my door and invited me to come and my life was radically changed again And then I began to look around my church, and different people began to tell me different things about the Bible. And suddenly I realized, it's not enough just to say I believe the Bible is the clear revelation of the one true God, because people had so many different opinions about it. Now I got my doctorate just down the road from y'all in Deerfield, Illinois, at Trinity Evangelicals. I came up here and got it here. Uh, D.A. Carson was a teacher there and I remember him saying to evangelicals like us, you fight and claim the Bible is inerrant and then you can't agree on anything it says that is self-defeating and it is. So, I want in our next few hours together is to give you a roadmap. Not my opinion, not your mother's opinion, not a denominational opinion. I want to give you a methodology, a procedure of how to find meaning in the Bible. This thing will do two things for you. If I see you in five years, you'll hug my neck. I want to give you a track to run on so you can self feed. I know you have good preachers, but whatever he says is not enough. It's pre-digested through his experience, through his background. You need to learn how to self-feed. And if all you get is church, you are an anemic Christian. And most of the Christians I meet today are biblically illiterate and only know about 10 proof texts and they haven't even read the paragraph of the chapter where that verse occurs. But they'll split a church in a minute over their opinion about something. I want to give you a shield against weird dogmatic religionists. And they're all around us who claim their way is the only way. And if you don't know your Bible for yourself, you're going to be led or by the nose by those dynamic personalities in TV or in the media and just drag you around. You've got to know this book for yourself to protect yourself. There is a peace that comes from knowing this book. There's a peace that comes from knowing Jesus. There's another peace that comes from knowing what he said and how you can understand it. We don't need a priest. We need to understand this book. I'm going to give you 50 years of struggling with this. I'm going to bring up every controversial thing you ever heard about to show you that there are alternate interpretations. That there's a need for look at this text and read it as someone in that day would understand it. Not you. Not, this is not written in English. This is not written to America. This is not written to the 20th and 21st century. This book, this message is for you, but it wasn't written to you. And we're going to peel those layers back. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Would you bow your heads just for a minute Lord, because we've been speaking about your book and about your son, we know that even now that there are people who are here that suddenly, as I've been speaking, there's been a strange warmth in their heart and mind that something has touched a chord, something has spoken to you at a deep level. Friends, we call that the Holy Spirit. And every one of us in this room who are saved had an experience like that. He broke into our lives and drew us to God, drew us to this book. We do not want you to be like us or agree with us, but we want you to know the God of this book. We want you to have the peace that passes all understanding. We want you to have assurance that your life is hid with God, that your sins are forgiven, that heaven is waiting for you. We want this for you. And we pray today. If your heart has been warmed, your mind has been touched, that you will talk to one of these leaders before you leave this building. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Word of Grace. For more sermons or any other information, visit WOGCC.com.